Well, today we're in part two of our Countdown to Christmas kind of series called Fear Not. And if you missed last week, let me just quick you bring, quickly bring you up to speed. Uh, we're looking at three different tellings of the birth story of Jesus, uh, who would later be known as Christ or the Christ, which is the same as Messiah, the Messiah. So you, you, sometimes you hear that word Christ or you hear Messiah, but Christ comes from the Greek that's the translation that comes out. Messiah comes from the Hebrew. That's the translation that comes out. And so different times you'll hear it in different places. So in each of these gospel stories, we see an angel appear to different people. That's what we're going to be focusing in there. And the angel always seems to say, what does it say? Right at the beginning, angel says, fear not, at least if you're reading the King James. But that's a, it's sort of in there and it sounds kind of better when you fear not. It sounds powerful. Last week, we saw an angel come to visit Mary and we, we let that story begin to help us overcome our fear of what God is asking us to do. Because we don't always trust God with our best, right? Sometimes we're worried about what's going to happen there. And so if you didn't hear that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that on the podcast. But let's start off this morning with more of what you think, okay? So um, what do you think about this? How many of you would say that you care a lot about what other people think about you, okay? Just put up your hand. You care what other people think about you. Raise them up. Okay. We're in church, people. <laughs> you know if there's one place you're not allowed to lie, it's in church. Look, look at the people around you. The people who don't have their hands up, the only reason they don't have their hands up is because they're too worried about what you think about them. <laughs> That's the only possible reason. All right? We don't want to worry what other people think. I think we, we could agree on that part, but the fact is that we do. And to, to admit to that is simply to tell the truth. I'm not proud of the fact that that's what happens, but that is what happens, right? I'm worried about it. And not all the time, but sometimes it just comes up and it just pokes at me. The reality is we, we drive around, we walk around, and we see people and we go, oh, did, do you like the car that I have? Because this is a new car. This car is better than my old car. Isn't this a good car? Do you like my car? Do you like the clothes that I wear? Do you like my hairstyle? Do you think I'm funny? Do I fit in? Am I marvelous? And we become obsessed with what other people think about us. And it works really well because we have become a selfie society. We like to take selfie pictures and we want someone to like our pictures, to like the filter that we use, to like the duck face that we put on. We want people to like that and to click it and to say I'm valuable and I'm important and what I've put out there is significant. We do like that. And if it's not you, I can tell you it's certainly the culture that's around you. There is a desire to be approved of. I want you to like me and like what I like. So Joseph is engaged to this young teenage virgin girl named Mary. Now in this time, engagements are different than they are today. All right, so today if you're engaged and, and things kind of get weird, uh, then you can break off the engagement, right? You lose some deposits, maybe, uh, but, but maybe you can also breathe a sigh of relief and a sigh of frustration and a sigh of disappointment, but, but it's over, it's done. You pay the bill and you're not connected. But back in the time that we're going to look at in the first century, an engagement was a binding agreement. And you would be engaged for a period of time. And in that time, if you wanted to break off the engagement, you actually had to file for divorce. The only way out of an engagement was divorce or death. 
And the engagement was so serious that if one of the two people died, the other person in the engagement would be considered a widow or a widower. Engagement and marriage was a very big deal. And it's important to understand that it was a community matter. It wasn't just personal. It wasn't just my private life. And if an individual would commit a sin, that's what would happen. But the sin wasn't personal. The sin was a community sin. And as a whole, the society would be damaged because of that sin. This was a view that developed largely through the Old Testament and the judgments that happened there. So there was the invasions of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the people, after they returned from captivity from Babylon, they took a super serious view about sin. And they, uh, they started to look at it, the sin as the nation's culpability. They were judged together as a people. They could not tolerate sin because they believed that it was their communal sin that God judged when he drove the other nations to punish them and invade. Sinful rebellion against God was the concern. And so they said, never again. Never again will we be like that, that we don't care about God's law. We learned our lesson. And that gave rise to a group of, to a group of professional rule keepers known as the Pharisees. Right, this is what they did for a living. They were paid to be good. They were paid to show other people how to be good. And so they saw the laws that God had created. And they saw that. And they think of that as like a, a ring in the middle. And they decided what would be really great is if they built a fence around that ring. And then they built another fence around that fence of laws so that you wouldn't get close to breaking God's law ever again. It was a safety and security mindset. And so they laid out 613 laws that needed to be followed. So no young girl is going to put the entire community in danger of judgment again. It's just too risky. So you get rid of the young girl and purify the nation again. But what, but what about killing the girl? I mean, isn't that a sin? Well, that's why you use public stoning. No individual killed her. I just threw a rock, man. No big deal. No one was individually culpable for the death of the person. Okay, so it's important to have that as part of the background of the story that we're in because it's just not the way we live. We don't have any understanding of that. And whether or not you think that's right or you think that's good is irrelevant. That's simply what was then. And that's what we're trying to understand. So with that in mind, we're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is Matthew's version of the story. This is from his perspective. And Matthew was a really good friend of Jesus, hung out with Jesus through his entire ministry time. So he knows what he's talking about. He said, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, you can read that because you probably have heard that before. You just read it, right? Just keep right on going. We'll just keep trucking through this story. But if you had to, try to put your head into the heads of Mary and Joseph. You have to admit that this would be a really odd conversation. So Mary sits down with her fiancé and says, Joey, 
Join my pomegranate. Join my honeysuckle flower. Your skin is radiant like the sun kiss of heaven. But hey, I got to tell you, the well and the water seems very good today. It's very fresh. I had eggs for breakfast yesterday. I'm pregnant. The new door that you made looks smashing. What, what, what? No, 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 no. Don't worry. Don't jump to conclusions. The good news is it's by the Holy Spirit. Now, if I'm Joseph, I'm kind of like, and, and, and how long did you take coming up with that story? Don't give me that Holy Spirit stuff, okay? I saw the way he was checking you out down at the well. Yeah, this whole thing just doesn't feel right to me. And wham, there you go. Joseph's life, transformed, changed, unexpected. Here it comes. From a human perspective, he's got two options, right? Because if you take out the option, the possibility that God actually did that, which most people would take that possibility out right away, you've got two other choices. This chick has lost her mind, or she's a liar. And I don't want someone who's lost their mind to marry me, and I don't want a liar to marry me. She says, I'm pregnant. The Holy Spirit did it, Joseph. And Joseph's got to be asking himself, okay, if I stay with this girl, what's everybody going to say? What are they going to think about us? What are they going to think about me? They're, they're on a crackdown now, a sin crackdown. Anything visible, we got to get rid of it. And so from her perspective, she's already marked. This was a sin. And during this time, to be pregnant and to be out of wedlock, it's not just naughty, it's punishable by death. They would stone you for this. So from his perspective, he's marked for the rest of his life too. If he's the guy that got her pregnant, or she got pregnant with someone else, it doesn't matter. From that point on, he's going to have a hard time finding a job connecting in society. So if he divorces her, then no other father is going to want to bless his daughter to marry him. He might find it difficult to get people to do business with him. So maybe he's in, he's taking his donkey in for an oil change, and the people say, you know, we don't work on that kind of donkey at this place because everybody's going to know. Everyone's going to talk about it. Everyone's going to know what's going on in his life. There are no secrets for him anymore because the biggest secret is already out in the open. So we don't know for sure his state of mind, but what we do know from the text is that he's bailing on the relationship. He's done. Either he doesn't believe her or he doesn't want to take the heat or whatever he thinks about it. He's like, okay, that's happened. It's going to be better for us to just move down the road. We'll, we'll leave that in the past and I'm going to move on to my future. So verse 19, we see how this unfolds. Um, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, grace, and truth, right? John 1.14 talks about how Jesus came full of grace and truth. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, truth, he did not want to expose her to public dis dis disgrace. That's the grace. He had in mind to what? What was he going to do? He had a mind to divorce her quietly. So he's jumping out on the relationship. I'm done. Now, divorcing her quietly is, is actually a very noble and honoring thing to do from his perspective. 
What he's thinking is, I'm not going to expose her to public shame. I'm not going to go down to the town square and tell everyone, she cheated on me. Let's stone her. Because that was the expectation. That was the rule of law. That was what was supposed to happen. We need to get the sin out of the camp. He's acting in a very loving way, caring about her. And he thinks, well, maybe she's got relatives, right? Maybe she can go there, have the baby, start over somewhere else. And I'll start over. I'll start over too. And we can together both start over and not have this be the end of the road. This seems like the best way out of a bad situation. And he's about to learn one of the most important life lessons for those who want to honor God. If you are one of those people who has decided in your heart and in your mind that you want to honor God, you're going to learn that pleasing God often means disappointing people. He's going to learn that powerful truth that if you want to obey God, there will be times, there might be many times, when other people will not agree and they will not understand and they will not give you the benefit of the doubt. Pleasing God often means disappointing people. And here's how the story goes. Verses 20, 21. But after he had considered this, in other words, he's thinking about it. He's thought it through. I got my list of pros. I got my list of cons. The list of pros of leaving are higher than the list of cons. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave her, move on down the road. After he considered all this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, fear not. Again, King James Version, it would say fear not. But here it says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And at this moment, when he wakes up from the dream, you have to imagine Again, like Mary, the swing of emotions that's inside Joseph's mind. My gosh, for centuries and centuries, since Moses, it's been prophesied that a Messiah would come. And here, today, the angel of the Lord has told me that I get to be a part of the greatest event in history to this point. And then a moment later, the emotions kind of got to swing the other side. And you got to say, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? What are people going to say about me? What is this going to cost me? How am I ever going to get past what people think? How am I ever going to get past what people do because of what they think about me? And on one hand, I, got, I get to work in partnership with Yahweh, the God of the universe, involved in forever changing the world. And on the other hand, I have no idea how difficult this will be. Everyone around me, if I asked for advice, everyone around me would say, run for your life. Don't marry this girl. Don't get involved with a girl who sinned against you and against God. Think of the community. Think of our nation. Have we learned nothing? She must be put to death by stoning. On the third hand, what do you do? How do I please God as a man? How as a man do I behave in this circumstance and please God? What does that look like? Should I do what people want or should I do what God wants? And I can promise you, 
If you're a follower of Jesus, at different points in your life, you're going to be confronted with opportunities to obey God or to do something easier and win the approval of people. Through this story, we can learn some very important principles. Like, why does this matter so much? The first thing, and this is gigantic in our lives, this is a life thread kind of thing. It's this. Becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. The reality is, the way that we move, we all drift towards wanting to please people. It's what we do. And suddenly, without even meaning to, we surrender our lives to the opinions of other people at the expense of actually living to please God. How do you overcome that? Becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. The good news, the inverse is also true. Becoming obsessed with what God thinks about you is the quickest way to forget what people think about you. Living for an audience of one, God, I want to please you with all that I do. That is the quickest, the most direct, and the best route. Maybe it's the only way to grow past living for the approval of others. Because our God loves you, and our God loves the people around you. He's not sending you on a path that's going to be terrible for everyone. That's not the way he works. Here's the bottom line. Think about it. You can't please everyone. Is, is, there, is there anyone here who's tried, who had the thought in their head, I bet I'll be able to please everyone? How, how long did it last? Right? Because I'll be honest, I thought I could do it. I thought it's possible. I'll please everyone. You can't do it. It doesn't last. If you want to please people, you will at some point inevitably fail. If you do your hair one way, you say, hey, do you like the way I'm doing my hair? And someone will say, yeah, you're cool now. And another group's going to say, no, that's ugly. In fact, you're bald. Those are bad people. And I like this kind of music. And they say, I like that kind of music. And then you meet somebody else and they say, I don't like that kind of music. And you don't know, what am I allowed to say? What am I allowed to enjoy? And then politically, I, get, I, I believe this politically. And they go, yeah, so do I. And I believe this politically. Hey, you know what? So do I. What if I want to stand here? Everybody hates you, right? That's just sort of the way it works. There's, there's not a way to make people agree with you on everything. If you try to please one group, you have to displease someone else. The bottom line is no matter how hard you try, you cannot please everyone. And, and trying is tiring, and it's frustrating, and it's discouraging because you were filled with good intent. You meant well. You were trying hard. Why can't it just be easy? It's not. But the great news is, what seems like it would be more difficult is actually easier. The great news is you can please God. You can please God even though pleasing people is impossible. You can, each one of you can live a life where God looks at you and says, you done good, 
you did the right thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Joseph's going to have to come to a place in his life where he says, you know what? I value the opinion of God above the opinion of people. And he started to answer the question about how do we live for God instead of for people? The first part is so important because when you're living for God, not everybody's going to like it. Okay, so pleasing God often means disappointing people. So the first thing is, if you're not ready to be criticized for your obedience to God, you're not ready to be used by God. Heads up, you're going to be criticized. You're going to be criticized anyways. Whichever side you choose to be on, you're going to be criticized for it because you can't please all the people all the time. So you think about the number of different ways that Joseph and Mary would be criticized. I mean, publicly disgraced. Again and again, people would whisper about them in the background. Hey, you know that's not really Joseph's baby, right? Or, you know, they said it was by the Holy Ghost, right? But I saw his donkey parked outside of her apartment at 2 a.m., and they weren't doing any Torah studies at 2 a.m., it's a huge and public disgrace, and people make up stories. They add them on just so they can be part of the story. They can be part of the event. They add on. And I don't know what it's going to look like or how it's going to play out in your life, because it's going to be different for different people. But there's going to be a time, if you're reading God's Word, and God's Word speak to you, <coughs> that what it's going to ask you to do is perhaps going to be culturally unpopular. And if you obey what you believe God is saying to you, you're going to be criticized. Or you may hear the voice of God leading you to do something. You may be deciding to break free of you know, kind of the party lifestyle. And you say, I'm going to serve Christ. And I'm not getting drunk anymore. And I'm not doing drugs anymore. And all your party friends are like, what are you doing, you religious freako? You're not better than us. You'll be back. You'll be back soon. You always come back. Or you might say, you know, you know what? No matter how I have lived in the past, from now on, I'm going to honor God with sexual purity. And people are like, you're going to what? I mean, like, that's got to be the stupidest. Do you even know what year we live in? Come on and be free. It only makes sense. That's what you're built for. That's so old-fashioned. If that's what religion is about, you can have it. Count me out. You religious wackos are always into trying to ruin other people's fun. Why do you always have to criticize and bring down? They make fun of you. They criticize. Or maybe you're in a place where you actually have a, a high-paying job, and you've decided, I'm going to leave that job for a lower-paying job because you feel like God is calling you to do something with your life that might actually contribute to your society. You feel like you can make a difference with this new job. And even though the pay isn't as high, you feel like my impact will be greater. And everybody's like, why would you do that? How could you not see what you need to see? What about your security? Don't you love your family enough to give them everything that they want? Or maybe, maybe you've just made the choice to live beneath your means. You're going to keep the job. You've got that job. But you've decided that you're actually going to live at a level that's significantly under it because you've decided to give and to live generously, sacrificially, and radically to change this world, to have an active hand in making a difference in people's lives. 
And that's a hard one to explain. Because the people you're talking to, odds are pretty good. They live in the not-so-financial world. And they don't get your weird way of living. Do you remember we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago in Weird Like Us? We talked about the way that we think and the way the systems that we get involved in. Being generous, though, maybe, maybe that just lets you know that it fulfills you and, and, and it gives additional value to the stuff, stuff that you would otherwise lose interest in, stuff that you would otherwise forget about, stuff that would otherwise be tossed out. This is a great season to talk about that, all those gifts that are under the tree and watching the system that says within three months, more than 50% of the gifts under the tree will be in the trash. What do, what do we choose to live with? By the next year, almost 90% of the gifts that you got under your tree this year have been discarded in some way or another. Either they broke, or you decided you don't need them, you need to pare down, whatever. Why do we live like that? And in making those statements, mockery might come. Criticism might come. But if you're not ready to be criticized for your obedience to God, then you're not ready to be used by God. It's just part of the entry-level process. The more you do, the more pain you'll experience. If you want to make a difference in this world, if you honestly believe that God can use you to make a difference to other people's lives, you will endure more pain than those who don't. I didn't make it up. Right? I, I, it's not my decision that that's the way it happens, but I'm just telling you that's the way it happens. If you want a life where nobody criticizes you, if you, you want a life where they just leave you alone, do nothing. Stand for nothing. Accomplish nothing. Thought number two, and this is going to, hopefully this is going to set some people free. Change the mind path. Change the tape that's been playing up there. Extraordinary acts of God often start with ordinary acts of obedience. Extraordinary, remarkable acts of God often start with seemingly mundane, average, ordinary, habitual acts of obedience. Think about this. The Savior of the world was born to two teenage slash young adults, and they simply said yes to God in a simple act of obedience. What's tricky is if, if you want to get into the minds of Mary and Joseph, or Joseph and Mary, what, what did the angels tell them? Did they get more information than we have recorded? They, they say, you're going to have a boy. Name him Jesus. He's going to save people. That's it. That's all that we've got. No details. Uh, how are we going to raise him? How, how do we discipline him? How, do, we, do we spank him? Do we put him in timeout? What do you do with the Son of God? What's the right way to do that? And then you go, okay, well, hold on a second. We're dealing with the Son of God. Okay, so he's perfect. Maybe he'll spank us. Maybe he'll put us in timeout. There's no details of how you have to do this thing that you've been asked to do. How can I plan for that, God? I don't know all that I'm going to have to do. You, you haven't told me everything that it's going to take. 
And, and I think there's times when we go to God and we say, show me the details. And God says, you can't handle the details. If I showed you everything, you wouldn't take the first step. Because when we imagine the future, we never imagine God in the future with us. Isn't that true? When you imagine the future, you don't have a date in there that says, and God intervenes, right? And you circle that date. This is the date that God's going to intervene. We believe that it all just goes down. Everything just goes down. Everything just gets worse. That's the way we view the future. Even though we know in the past we've seen God at work, we know in the present we are seeing God work. But when we imagine the future, God's not there. It's all going to fall apart. How am I going to do that? How am I going to pay for that? How am I going to be able to survive what's going on there? They didn't know the details. They'd never had a child before. They'd never been married before. Here's something that you can put in your head. Think about this one. You can play it back later. We don't have to understand completely to obey immediately. It is so easy to say to God, I don't fully understand. It would be unwise for me to commit to something that I don't fully understand. Going, Even if you think you understand it, you don't. I don't have to understand it completely to obey immediately. We don't have to see the whole picture to put the first puzzle piece in place. Start. Trust God. Take a step. And then, trust God for step two. He didn't start you on the path to leave you hanging out. He started you on the path to take you to a destination. The journey is part of what God is in the whole time. That's why we talk about the road trip here so much, because that's the way life seems to work. We don't know the whole thing. One step at a time, let's go together. I don't want to go alone. I want you to come with me. So we go together on this. And it doesn't matter if you're super mature or you're just learning for the first time. We go together because it's safer together. Because God has called us to be in community together. And because God speaks to people together. And sometimes he can speak to someone else on your behalf. And you need to know what they know because the message is not going to come just to you. We share in this together. The part that you want to remember. Go back to last week for a second. Outcome is whose responsibility? Outcome is God's responsibility. What's our responsibility? Obedience. Obedience is ours. Outcome is God's responsibility. Obedience is ours. Extraordinary acts of God often start with ordinary acts of obedience. Moses' first day on the job didn't have him parting the Red Sea. Just not the way that it worked. And this part is so encouraging to me because I'm not a superhero. I don't see myself in that kind of way that I'm about to change the world, but I can. I can make small changes. I can engage in small amounts of obedience at one time, see if I can get a rhythm, see if I can start rolling in obedience instead of just sort of walking in and saying, this is it, this is the day. A little bit at a time, and God opens a new door for me. That's the story of Into One. If you've been here, the way I like to describe it most is we are the church of the open doors. Not just is our door open, but the doors have opened before us because God is fighting on our behalf. He's ahead of us on the path, and he's just, come on. Try and keep up, would you, Graham? You're slowing everybody else down. You have no idea what might be set in motion 
when you simply obey what God puts on your heart. Why do you think he put it on your heart? You have no idea what you can set in motion when you do what God calls you to do. Trust him. This is the biggest part of your relationship with God. Sometimes it sounds extra churchy if we call it faith, but that's why I like to say trust. Just trust him. Just trust to see that he'll show up. And so this week, when you decide, I'm going to start to risk a little bit, maybe God's going to prompt you in a specific way, and I would say, listen, take that interruption and make it an opportunity. Take that opportunity when you see somebody else and risk, say, come to Christmas Eve. Come. There's a bunch of other people coming too. You don't have to worry. Invite somebody. Bring them along. Set up a relational kind of thing that you could say, maybe we could have lunch together and then go. Maybe we'll have Christmas Eve together and then we could do something afterwards. Five o'clock, right? You got lots of time for the evening. Maybe you set it up for after Christmas. We'll start because Christmas is important to me. It's part of my tradition. What? Come on. Join us for that. Take that small risk there. You have no idea how generations might be different by a single act of obedience because God puts someone on your heart. When you feel prompted to serve somewhere in the church, you have no idea. Say yes. You don't know whose life might be different. How their, might, their life might come back to even bless you. How much your life will be changed when you do something for someone else. And suddenly, maybe the high point of your week is now doing that invisible servant behind the scenes thing. Being like Jesus. Caring for somebody. And maybe you can find love and joy and fulfillment in doing that. And some of you, you might start to live intentionally generously with your time, your treasure, and your talent. One day you look back and you say, I cannot believe what God did in me and what God did through me. Our lives are different because of a small choice that I made, a new habit, a new marriage becomes a way. You can revitalize your own marriage by choosing little things. In another relationship, in your family, in your finances, the way that you look at that, just be freed from those things with a single act of obedience. And so the angel speaks to Joseph and he says, fear not. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. You will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save people from their sins. And now he's got a choice to make. Does he do what's easy or does he do what's right? Does he do what people want him to do or does he do what God would want him to do? Becoming obsessed with what God thinks about you is the easiest way to get rid of worrying about what people think of you. So in one little verse, we see his decision. And that's what's so encouraging to me about this one little verse is that God is going to prompt many of you to do something through his word or by his spirit. And one sentence could summarize your response. Here was Joseph's response in verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. He did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. And through that simple act of obedience, the greatest act of God in human history was brought to fulfillment. He had no idea the long-lasting implications of his choice. And you have no idea what you will set in motion with a single trusting 
act of obedience to God. So when God speaks to you, you wrestle with it. What's easy? What's right? What people think? What does God want? And there could be one sentence, one destiny-altering sentence. You did what the Lord prompted you to do. In, in, our, in our Words to Live by series, we talked about morning declarations. Don't know if you remember them, but let me remind you of one that I rehearse, and I rehearse, and I go over because it's a morning declaration, and mornings come all the time. The world will be different and better today because I obeyed Jesus. The world will be different and better today because I trusted Jesus. The world will be different and better because I served Jesus today. And I promise you, you have no idea what one single act of obedience can set in motion when you obey what our good God puts on your heart. Let's pray. Father, I ask today that by the power of your Spirit, you would speak to your church God, that we would be sensitive to what you want to say to us directly through your word or by the power of your spirit. God, we want to follow you. We want to do what you call us to do. It is our desire to be obedient. It is our desire to be trusting. It is our desire to trust you, even when we don't know how things are going to go. And when I say it's our desire, God, that means I acknowledge right from the beginning, I know that I'm going to need your help. Help me to trust when it feels like my trust is not enough. God, we believe. God, help us to believe. We trust you with the outcome. We'll be faithful to you with our side, with the obedience. Work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace on those his favor rests. And peace to those on whom his favor rests. And peace to those on whom his favor rests. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It's better when you're here. It's better when you visit. Better when you come regularly. Better when you're here. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for worshiping with us. Thanks for breathing life into what we're trying to do here. As you go today, again, I want to remind you that you're not just leaving, you're going to be sent. Because as you go, you are being sent as the church. And I want to remind you as you go that we are Christ-centered, we are spirit-empowered, and we are mission-focused. And the mission that we are focusing on is for everyone, everywhere, all the time. 